Welcome to Still at Large, a podcast series looking at unsolved British murder cases. Each episode will examine an individual murder or a series of killings that, despite the best efforts of the various police forces involved, have, for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. The subject matter is not for young children or those with a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 1. The murder of Jean Mary Townsend. September 1954. Jean lived with her parents at the family home of 92 Bempton Drive, South Ryslip, in the London borough of Hillingdon. A tidy suburban neighbourhood, this was Jean's ultimate destination on the night she was murdered. Jean worked as the manager of a theatrical costumier in London's West End, and occasionally as a model. Her commute to and from central London was a regular part of her life. She returned to South Ryslip on the last Central Line train of the evening of 14th of September 1954, following a social function in the West End. England was in the grip of post-war austerity and people were keen to make money in any way they could. Jean had been to a pyramid party. Often described as a face-to-face chain letter, attendees would hand over cash to each other at regular parties, often accruing quite substantial amounts of cash quite quickly. The exact way in which Jean is involved is unclear. Sometimes she is described as a hostess or, alternatively, as an investor, but what is certain is that she was a regular attendee to these events. At around quarter to midnight, Jean was seen leaving South Ryslip Railway Station and walking alone along Victoria Road. The walk from the station to her home should have been no more than 20 minutes. However, Jean never made it home that night. Her body was found the following morning on a patch of waste ground by Victoria Road and near to the junction of Angus Drive at 7am by a milkman or a printer depending on which account you read. She was a mere 600 yards from the safety of her home. As was protocol at the time, Scotland Yard was summonsed and quickly took control of the scene under the leadership of Detective Superintendent Richardson. In order to isolate the crime scene, a ring of polling booths was used to screen any activity from the public. The post-mortem, which was carried out by Home Office pathologist Professor Donald Tear, stated that she had been strangled with her own scarf at or around midnight. It was reported that despite various items of her clothing being removed, namely her underwear and stockings, that there were no signs of sexual assault. The clothing which had been removed had been folded carefully in a neat pile next to her. An unusual and noteworthy feature of this case. At the time, Scotland Yard were also investigating the murder of Ellen Carlin, only a week beforehand. She too was also found strangled with an item of her own clothing. The Advertiser, in Adelaide, Australia, published a story on its front page linking these two crimes on the 17th of September 1954, just three days after her murder, dubbing it the work of the mad killer of Pimlico. Whether the two were linked by police investigating the crime is not known. As the investigation began, local women came forward with details of similar instances in the area 
and over the weeks leading up to Jean's murder. The closest the police came to having a witness was Miss Brenda Thompson. Brenda lived with her parents in Westmead Road, which overlooked the area where Jean was killed. She had been in bed when she heard a woman scream. Getting up, she went to the window to look. As it was not yet midnight, the time when the street lights were turned off, the streets were still lit, but she was unable to see any activity. Brenda called to her father, and they both stood listening at the window for a while. After a few minutes, it's reported that they heard two men arguing, one of whom appeared to have an American accent, or at least a nasal twang. It seemed that one of the men was quite agitated, and the other was trying to calm him. The previous evening, Brenda had had an encounter with two men as she walked past the waste ground where Jean was found. They had tried to stop her, but she escaped and ran to the safety of her home. It was not an isolated incident in the weeks prior to Jean's murder. Miss Jacqueline Cliff reported how she had been apprehended in a phone box at 10.30 on the night before the murder by two men, one of whom had an American accent and drove an American-style station wagon. She described one of them as being aged about 30 with a high forehead. One of the men she described as wearing an American uniform. Another young woman, Joan Gala, reported being strangled by a man late at night on Victoria Road the Saturday before the murder. She had fought back and escaped. She described the man as wearing a brown coat and gabardine trousers. Gabardine is a tough, tightly woven fabric used to make suits, overcoats, trousers and uniforms. Several weeks after the murder, Mrs Doris Bennell was attacked by a man whom she described as being about 30 and having a high forehead. He had attempted to strangle her after following her for some distance. He attacked Mrs Vennell after she stopped to challenge him. In the ensuing struggle, Doris tore three buttons from his coat before escaping. She returned to the scene of her attack the following day. She collected the buttons she had dropped during the struggle and diligently she handed them in to police when she gave her account of the attack, but nothing came of it. At the time, there was a non-flying air base at RAF South Ryslip. It was home to the 3rd Air Force of the USAF, with thousands of US personnel stationed there. So it wasn't uncommon for American-style cars and accents to be in the area at the time. However, within a very short time, suspicion fell on American servicemen due to the reports by local women given to police. Subsequent reluctance on the part of the USAF authorities to cooperate with the Metropolitan Police in the murder inquiry served to heighten local suspicions. As an interesting aside, stationed at RAF South Ryslip in 1952 was A2C Larry Hagman, 3rd Air Force Entertainment Specialist. Larry Hagman is of course best remembered for his role as J.R. Ewing in the oil-based melodrama Dallas, although I much prefer his earlier comedic performance in I Dream of Jeannie. I am not in any way suggesting the two are connected, it's merely interesting trivia. At the time of the murder, Scotland Yard were also investigating the murder of Ellen Red Helen Carlin. Ellen was a 28-year-old woman from Ulster who was allegedly working as a prostitute in Pimlico, central London. It was common for working girls to have nicknames that in some way made reference to their appearance. Ellen had long ginger hair 
and was therefore known as Red Helen. It's reported that she went to her room with an American Air Force sergeant on Monday the 6th of September. Screams were heard coming from her room at around midnight. When she was found, Ellen had been beaten around the head before being strangled with her own scarf. Little is known about the case as the file is closed until 2057. The similarities are obvious, superficially, but police did not link the two. Ellen's murder was later supposedly confessed to by the Scottish serial killer Peter Manuel. Manuel was a highly intelligent and sadistic killer. He was known to be travelling around the area at the time of Jean's murder. He was, at the time, engaged and although he claims to be responsible for Ellen's murder, his main tranche of killings didn't begin until 1956. It is highly likely that the American-born Manuel was responsible for Ellen's death. But it's also just as likely that the confession was a condemned man with nothing to lose, admitting to guilt to allow another killer to escape justice. At the inquest into Jean's murder, the coroner expressed his surprise that apart from the obvious symptoms of asphyxiation, there were no signs of a struggle or that Ms Townsend had physically resisted her attacker. The post-mortem report is claimed to have stated, apart from the removal of her underwear, there were no obvious signs of sexual interference. What is clear is that the clothes that had been removed from Jean's body had been placed in a neat pile next to her. This is an interesting behaviour, one that had been witnessed in earlier almost identical murders of young women, where their bodies had been deposited by a roadside after they had been strangled with their own clothing. Those murders all took place in West Germany in the early 1950s, allegedly near to US bases, but information on them is very hard to find. Post-war Germany was rife with rape and murder on both East and West fronts with occupying Allied forces seeming to commit atrocities against the population in some form of revenge. Whether there is a link between the cases in Germany and Jean's murder, it is not concrete and should be regarded as tenuous at best. However, it would seem that the link, because of the repeated description given by women in the area, is firmly established that it was an American serving in Europe committing a series of murders. Well, not quite. 28 years after her murder, and with no definite suspect identified and the case cold, the Metropolitan Police announced that they had received a number of anonymous phone calls, and as a result, they would be reviewing the files on the case. They said they were very interested in what the caller had to say and as a result of the information they were confident that no American servicemen were involved in the killing and that there was no link between Jean's murder and any other crime. Jean's mother, Lillian Townsend, was interviewed by the Daily Mail in 1982. She is quoted as saying, I never really got over her death. A clairvoyant told me whoever did it was far away across water. But now it's nothing to me. I am not vindictive. I don't know why they should reopen the case. It strikes me as an odd stance to take, as if it had been my daughter, I would want the murderer caught, regardless of the passage of time. But I don't have the experience to fully form an opinion. Press coverage of the case in 1982 was rather strange as it contradicted the original reports of 1954 
by saying that Jean had been raped. But the post-mortem report is very specific that there were no obvious signs of sexual interference. It is such a curious, almost salacious tone used by the press that it could have obscured the facts and prevented someone from coming forward. Despite the possibility of new information from their anonymous informant, further developments and an arrest failed to materialise. The case would remain cold after this, despite the police asking for the caller to make further contact. Another 23 years would pass before the case would be reviewed by a Freedom of Information request in 2005, when a former neighbour and school friend of Jean's, Mr Reg Hargreave, wanted to access the police files for the case. As 51 years had elapsed since the terrible events of 1954, the files had been moved to the National Archive in Kew, but the request was refused. The information officer was approached and an appeal was heard in camera, that is, behind closed doors, late in 2007. The Information Tribunal dismissed the appeal and upheld the decision to withhold the files from public inspection until 2031. Closed files often attract a certain excitement in some sections and the cry of cover-up is oft heard on the internet. However, during the hearing, a senior detective from the Metropolitan Police addressed the hearing with the information described as specific to the Townsend case. Such was the information given by the detective that the tribunal concluded that disclosure was likely to prevent the identification of the perpetrator and the administration of justice even though there was nothing to suggest that the identification of the murderer, either through a confession, new information, or advances in forensic science, was imminent. Such a development was, however, a possibility. This can be taken to mean that the police have an idea who the killer is, but they do not yet have the required evidence to make an arrest with a successful prosecution as the likely outcome. During the hearing, Information was presented that Jean's clothing had been re-examined in the 1990s with the aim of obtaining DNA evidence by the Forensic Science Service. Sadly, the results produced nothing of value. It was also disclosed during the tribunal that whilst the files were substantial, there were a number of items missing. We all lose stuff occasionally, but when it's evidence in a murder case, greater care should be taken to ensure absolutely nothing is ever lost. In the document produced by the tribunal, the position they hold changes quite dramatically. This is from their report. The critical issue, however, is whether there is indeed any substantial likelihood of the murderer being detected and or a prosecution being undertaken. Whilst we have regard to the general consideration set out in the Information Commissioners and the Metropolitan Police's submissions and in Detective Superintendent David Myveld's statement, we are not impressed by some of them, given the age of this case. There is no reason, of which we are aware, why any witness should now have a critical change of heart or crisis of conscience. Forensic science may advance in unforeseen ways, and a detective might spot a connection which eluded his or her predecessors 50 years ago. Such possibilities of progress cannot be excluded but they hardly amount to substantial reasons for thinking that there will ever be a future investigation which might be prejudiced. If the evidence had remained as advanced in the written submissions, it is quite likely that we should have concluded that Section 31, Subsection 1 was not engaged because the likelihood of prejudice could not be demonstrated. 
where information is requested as to a long dormant investigation, it may well be that a simple recitation of standard policy arguments will not suffice to overcome the first hurdle standing in the way of this exemption. However, we heard further evidence in the private session which clearly altered our view on this, because it was specific to this case. It did not indicate that a future identification and prosecution of the killer was more likely than not. It did persuade us that there was a significant possibility of such a development, such as to satisfy the test imposed by section 31, subsection 1. The files, the tribunal ruled, must remain closed. There followed some independent investigation into the case. This included a review of the original post-mortem report from 1954. The pathologist who conducted the review stated that they were broadly in agreement with the findings, but went so far as to speculate that although Jean's underwear had been removed, her outer clothing had been little disturbed, which could have suggested it was a consensual sexual act, or most likely an attempted rape that had ended in murder. Given the number of reported instances at the time of young women being approached by a man with roughly similar descriptions in the weeks and days prior to the murder, it is probably clear that the attack was a premeditated but opportunistic murder of a young woman late at night. One of the unifying descriptions of the assailant around the time of the murder was of a young man with what is described as a high forehead. The description closely matches that of Peter Manuel, the Beast of Birkenshaw. Manuel's killings were primarily shootings, with only one woman being definitely identified as a rape and strangulation. The modus operandi of Manuel was such that there were no clear victim profiles, as he murdered both young and old men and women. However, he was in the area around London at the time of Jean's murder. But, I have very strong doubts as to the viability of Manuel being responsible. The placement of Jean's underwear in a neatly folded pile points to someone with far more control than Manuel was known to have. Even with his confession to the murder of Ellen Carlin a week before, he isn't, to my mind at least, responsible for taking Jean's life. Whoever that is, and with the information provided by the Metropolitan Police to the Information Tribunal in mind, Jean Townsend's killer is still at large. If you have any information about this crime, or any other crime featured on Still at Large, please make contact with the relevant police authorities. Links will be provided on the pages for this podcast. Some music was by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large was written, produced and presented by Desmond J. Brambley and is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production. <laughs>